There was a television room where all the residents would watch the telly. There was one guy who'd be there every night, a drunk, wild man character. He was hilarious, always yelling at the screen, shouting hostile remarks at us. We were scared to death of him. While we were trying to watch our performance, he was bellowing, You look like Hitler! at Ron. Welcome back, Mailniacs, to another exciting episode of All You Ever Think About is Sparks, where our Ronald Coleman makes you blink and our Pancho Villa makes you think. I'm your host and tour guide, Christian Huey. In our last episode, we scrutinized and celebrated Sparks' second and final album for Bearsville Records, A Woofer in Tweeter's Clothing. Today, I'm picking back up the baton, packing it as my carry-on, and taking a vicarious flight from LAX to London Heathrow to give you a fly-on-the-walls view of Sparks' auspicious first tour of Europe. If you recall, producer James Lowe and manager Larry DuPont were certain as a satin curtain that 1972's Woofer album would be the band's big break in the USA. As the year crept on, however, it seemed increasingly unlikely that this would be the case. Despite standing shoulder to shoulder with America's eternal teenager Dick Clark on national television on American Bandstand, the band simply hadn't gotten traction. They never stopped pushing for new gigs, and Ron and Russell never stopped putting the screws to the management at Bearsville. Yet, next to nothing. Put another way, they had the flint to the steel... But if you'll forgive me, generated next to no Sparks. Long before Sparks existed as an entity, Ron and Russell considered England to be a spiritual homeland of sorts, and their musical and aesthetic sensibilities reflected this. Ron always fantasized of being Pete Townsend while he looked like a vampire Charlie Chaplin. Russell shamelessly affected a quasi-British accent on stage and on many of their recordings. Even Earl Mankey, far less of an Anglophile than the Male Brothers, took to aping the locks and the licks of British glam rock idol Mark Bolan. There were hints that this fondness was mutual. A 19-year-old British lad named Joseph Fleury had been a Sparks fanatic since the first album's release and flew across the Atlantic to catch a Sparks gig. He introduced himself to the band as they happened into each other at a New York record store, a day after Sparks' first night of a short residency at Max's Kansas City, which uh, for a time was a uh, Andy Warhol hangout. He informed the band that he was putting together a Sparks fan club, the first ever. Uh, side note, Flurry later became a major character in Sparks' larger saga, but we will get to that in due time. 
Ron and Russell had already visited the British Isles in their days at UCLA as backpacking tourists and had since felt the magnetic pull of Great Britain and its countrymen. Miriam and Oscar Roganson, that's Ron and Russell's parents, had even moved into a home in the Clapham Junction area of London two years previous. It took little convincing of Bearsville's bigwig Roy Silver that a mini-tour of the UK would pay off for Sparks as well as for the label. But Silver wasn't holding the purse strings to bankroll such an operation. He would have to go to Bearsville's corporate parent Warner Brothers for approval. This is the part of the Sparks' story where, were it not for a delicate balancing act of, and in some cases a mitigation of, conflicting personalities, the tale very well may have ended right there. According to Larry DuPont, Ron and Russell were feeling their oats as artists and performers, convinced of their own greatness, and encouraged by internal praise from James Lowe and Larry DuPont, among others, Ron and Russ started making demands of their management and their label. They felt no compunction about storming into Roy Silver's office and laying blame squarely on him for Sparks not enjoying the success they knew they were due. Larry DuPont rushed in to conduct damage control after some of these more acrimonious meetings. But Silver must have believed in Sparks' potential, or maybe he respected and was amused by Ron and Russell's chutzpah. Starting in early autumn 1972, Silver began a subtle, one-man PR campaign with Warner Brothers execs. He would simply drop by their New York offices day after day, flashing the gold medallions adorning his hirsute open-collared chest, and remind the powers that be that his band of young up-and-comers had a slate of engagements to fulfill in Europe, and can he please just get the check cut already? Here's Larry DuPont. Roy's philosophy to get a record company to do something is to talk on a daily basis as though something is happening. You don't ask for things, you talk about when they're going to happen. And sooner or later, somebody screws up. And the screw-up here was extreme. Roy Silver's stealth campaign worked. And if Warner Brothers' blind acquiescence was a screw-up, there was a serendipitous cherry on top. The WB execs allotted a paltry $10,000 U.S. for the band to use. When Roy Silver left the band in charge of his London counterpart, Derek Taylor, the sum was never mentioned, leaving Taylor and his confederates at WB's daughter label, WEA, that's Warner Electra Atlantic, Bearsville's European sister label, with the impression that Sparks was given a blank check. Another side note, Taylor was immediately charmed by the males at their first meeting at Silver's home in Hollywood Hills when they gifted Taylor a Beatles bobblehead Ron and Russell had inherited from their parents' novelty shop, The Gilded Prune. Impossibly, no one corrected this impression, and thus Derek Taylor, who incidentally was once a press man for The Beatles, treated the band with Larry DuPont in tow to a lifestyle that was the absolute fulfillment of their wildest rock star dreams. Although practically no one in England, or anywhere else, knew who the hell they were yet, they immediately started to live like rock stars. It's crucial to keep this in mind as Ron, Russell, and company boarded that first plane across the Atlantic. Among all the anxious rending of clothes, the accusatory and desperate gnashing of teeth, the cloak-and-dagger games with piles of money at stake, 
the absolute conviction that this was a make-or-break moment for the band Sparks, the album that they were leaving to promote still hadn't even been released yet. When the plane touched down in London, Miriam and Oscar Rogie Roganson made for a resplendent-looking welcome committee. They're at the arrivals gate at London's Heathrow Airport. They must have been proud of their boys. The Rogansons looked the part of a UN delegation welcoming visiting ambassadors to the Queen's England. The couple was impeccably dressed, received the lads as someone blasted Sparks' music on a portable tape recorder there at the gate. The welcome was indeed a warm one. Although the band plus DuPont would not be lodging with the Rogansons, not enough space, Miriam and Rogie took them out to dinner or to see the local sites whenever they could manage it. And it must have been dear. Having left his novelty shop behind in Los Angeles, Rogie made his living as a humble shoe salesman in London since 1970. The band was initially put up at the South Kensington Hotel under the auspices of Derek Taylor. Taylor still enjoyed a robust reputation left over from his time with the Beatles. And if there was anything Sparks needed or wanted, he would make it happen at the drop of a bowler hat. For example, the band were a gang of West Coast guys in their 20s. They were not ready for English weather. Taylor had them suited in warm leather overcoats at the expense of the record label. When the band was hungry for a good meal, Taylor treated them to London's finer eateries. Taylor wasn't just giving first-class treatment to the guys because Roy Silver instructed him to. He honestly believed in their talent and potential and openly compared them to the Beatles. And that comparison carried weight coming from him. There was no way for this pampering not to go to the guys' heads. They started behaving like rock stars, although minus the alcohol and drug abuse, which may have been crucial in keeping them on some kind of a behavioral leash. This acting out may have been a headache for Larry DuPont, must have been a headache, who was ostensibly acting as the band's handler. In retrospect, it was pretty anodyne kid stuff. Playing with a fire extinguisher, for example, or encouraging groupies to communicate by flinging pebbles at Harley's hotel window. Harley in particular really seemed to enjoy himself and spared few opportunities to meet the local maidens. Conversely, Jim Menke did not travel well and would spend most days seeking the refuge of his hotel room in quiet solitude. When Sparks stepped out into the streets of London, once they were protected from its uncongenial weather, they saw the youth of England deep in the thrall of the glam rock movement. While their fellow countrymen back home still had yet to shake off the last vestiges of hippie-inspired blue denim grittiness, The young people of London looked like they had landed from another planet. Outrageously coiffed and dyed hair, shiny threads with wide lapels, bell-bottoms that spanned entire postal codes, platform shoes that must have been a broken ankle just waiting for a reason, and an openly hostile attitude to traditional forms of gender expression. This was London in late 1972. Ziggy Stardust and the spiders from Mars had most definitely landed, and they were interbreeding with the Earthlings. Ron and Russell couldn't have been more enchanted by the whole scene. Back home, no frills southern rock by the likes of Leonard Skinner were on the rise. Here, 
Acts like Roxy Music and Queen were taking challenging postmodernist stances and sounds. They were blending genres old and new and embracing artifice as an aesthetic. Sparks could thrive in this greenhouse of pop weirdness. But uh, first they needed an actual gig. Enter John Hewlett. Sparks' de juris manager for the UK and Europe, John was tapped by Roy Silver to line up work for the band and talk them up to promoters. As opposed to the cigar-chomping, back-slapping, fast-talking New York Jew the band had managed to charm in the States, John was an arty British mod with a keen eye and ear to the street. Ron and Russell were also fans of his surreal 60s band John's Children, so named so that management wouldn't fire John when he revealed himself to be a weak bass player, and liked that he also had ties to the Beatles and Apple Records. Throughout Sparks' entire European sojourn, somewhere around two and a half months, Hewlett booked the band into 30 gigs and a handful of TV appearances. They started off slow, about two shows a week, but this gave the guys a chance to acclimate to their surroundings. Meanwhile, the record label in the UK, WEA, picked up the check when any expense, no matter how big or small, incurred. Rockstar camp was what the band called their present circumstances, and that wasn't really far off the mark. For his part, John Hewlett's initial impression of Sparks was decidedly ambivalent. I like them all. Hewlett later relayed, they had their act together, but it was obvious it wasn't going to work because it was an act rather than a band. It was contrived, and intentionally so. Sparks started their ad hoc European tour with a residency at the Pheasantry, so named because the space was once used by King George III to raise pheasants. The Pheasantry was a hugely influential venue in the mod era, but was held in a bit less esteem by Hewlett than others in the know by 1972. In Hewlett's view, the pheasantry was where a band played if it couldn't get booked at the marquee. It was, however, a gig, which was all the more notable, since according to Hewlett, quote, most people thought they were a bunch of shit. Well, shit or not, Sparks' image was emblazoned in the doorway at the pheasantry, and they were sharing the same performance space visited by heroes like Lou Reed and -and up-and-comers like Queen. Side note here, although Sparks professed not to be terribly impressed by Queen in 1972, Jim was taken aback by Freddie Mercury's performance. Quote, That guy is really weird. He's acting very gay. Harley especially took a shine to the pheasantry. Even on non-performance days, he would rock a bar stool and chat up the ladies with whom he would share bottles of champagne. Often Earl would join him, and a visibly charmed bartender dutifully sent the tab to the record company each time. After their first week at the pheasantry, Sparks came upon a scathing review of their performance in the local music press. While the band members were notably dispirited by the oddly vitriolic public rejection, Roy Silver had a different take entirely. You don't understand! This is wonderful! Any publicity is better than none! He was right. In the wake of one journalist's slagging off of Sparks, and all they stood for, the crowds just grew. 
Their first TV appearance was called Hits a Go-Go in Switzerland. The audience of Euroteens took a shine to their performances of Wonder Girl and Do Re Mi. Afterward, several people invited the band to a house party where they were greeted as superstars and signed autographs for kids who likely didn't even speak English. Next was France, and then Holland for a radio interview, and back to England. Sparks made their most high-profile appearance on November 21 when they managed to get on England's number one watched music variety program, The Old Grey Whistle Test. It was a surreal honor for Ron Russell and company to see themselves on primetime television. Unfortunately, the other guest booked that night was Neil Sadaka, who was angling for a comeback, and during his interview with host Bob Harris, both agreed that Sparks was most definitely not their thing. That sentiment was echoed by a drunk reveler at the band's hotel, who had watched their performance on the same lobby television and bellowed, You look like Hitler! to Ron's startled face. So, no. It wasn't a universally positive impression Sparks were making in the UK, but it was definitely an impression. Getting your band booked on Old Grey Whistle was the aim of every manager and record exec in the UK, and with Hewlett's help, Sparks had done it. Absolutely everyone was watching, even if that was only because England had three channels and there was nothing else to watch that night. Suddenly, the Marquis came calling, and they began a residency there. Things hit a slump when Russell's voice was taken captive by a cold virus, but he soon bounced back, and so did Sparks' performance schedule. The highlight must have been when they opened for the Kinks, who were playing a few dates in their home country after having returned from an American tour. Not long after that, Sparks opened for Electric Light Orchestra, most definitely an act on an upward trajectory. Larry DuPont really felt like the band were on the very precipice of breaking huge in England, and the marquee shows were attracting bigger and bigger crowds. Not to mention the fact that Woofer was about to be released in the UK, and Sparks was primed to capitalize on the event. Considering all that, DuPont was understandably miffed when Russell convinced the band to cancel a show at the Marquis and play a show instead at a club in Zermatt, Switzerland, because Russell had met a girl there whose dad was the owner. As luck would have it, by the way, that show itself became a bust due to the promoter's son hurriedly driving the band to the venue to make the gig in time and ultimately driving them into a ditch. DuPont was also irritated by the record label, WEA, for not releasing a single. Wonder Girl had been out in the States for months, and although it hadn't sold great, it did grant them exposure they likely wouldn't have had. DuPont tempered these feelings of aggravation by reminding himself of the unlikely coup they had pulled by keeping WEA in the dark about the laughably feeble budget Bearsville had granted them. A frustrated Sparks made a flight from Switzerland back to London in time for WEA's Christmas party. They spent Christmas Day with the Rogansons and then finished up their residency at the Marquee, hoping to make up the dates that they had missed. But there was to be one final cancellation. The day before Sparks were due to play their record release party at the Marquee in mid-January 1973, 
the band's tab had finally showed up in WEA's inbox. And the kicker, the U.S. label had only okayed a budget of $10,000, remember. The band had easily rung up five times that amount over three months, maybe ten times or more. The final balance remains a mystery. What is known is that Sparks plus Larry DuPont spirited away literally thieves in the night on the next available flight to LAX. Sparks apparently weren't subject to any major punishment or blowback by Bearsville back in the U.S., although it would be the end of their dealings with WEA. They played two homecoming shows at the Whiskey A Go-Go on January 29 and 30. The uh, marquee read, From London, Sparks! And it was like three months' time had erased from Los Angeles' collective memory of their prodigal sons. A woofer in Tweeter's clothing got lost in the Christmas shuffle, and Bearsville ultimately passed on releasing a single to promote the album at all. Producer James Lowe was crushed by Woofer's failure. It looked like he would have to make good on his promise to his wife to quit the music biz if this album wasn't a smash, and it wasn't. His reasoning for quitting? He had lost his ability to spot a hit. Lowe left for a successful career, subsequently, in television, and aside from a couple of short-lived reformations of his 60s band The Electric Prunes, once with uh, Harley Feinstein, he stayed away from the music industry. He remains a loyal Sparks fan to this day and looks on his contribution to those early years with pride. As for the band, they had run dead smack into a wall. After playing to throngs of eager fans in Europe, Sparks were lucky to get five people in to see them play the whiskey. By early spring 1973, the whiskey told Sparks to pack their gear and kick rocks right on out of there. Earl Mankey took a part-time job as a recording console designer to make ends meet. When Sparks was still relatively fresh off their morale boost from touring Europe, they holed up in Bearsville's upstate New York recording studio to cut a brand new single. The guys must still have had a wild hair or two to indulge. Despite signs posted in the studio that exhorted visitors to not touch certain equipment, Russell gleefully smeared a stick of butter all over the windows, and Harley put a drumstick through a bass drum. Despite this anarchic fit of peak, the sessions did produce, one recording, the silly but anthemic I Like Girls. James Lowe bowed out of those sessions and was replaced by Nick James. They had initially planned to work on a new album, and there was even talk of touring with Todd Rundgren that year. Both prospects fizzled. They shelved the single and wouldn't revisit it until 1976's Big Beat album, where the song was helpfully augmented by a big band-style brass section. Here's the original version of I Like Girls from 1973 right now. Come on, girl. 
Roy Silver also got Sparks to record a couple of radio promos for two of his other acts, Fanny, an all-girl band, and Bobby Charles. Friend of the podcast, Rud Swart, was kind enough to share those with me, and I'm going to play those right now. Give us a nice bass tone on this. Most groups have boys. Some groups have boys. Family has boys, but no boys. Family, 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 family. Boys have no boys, but girls with no boys, but no boys. By spring 1973, Sparks as a working band had creaked to a halt. For the first time, Ron and Russell were thinking of throwing in the towel, and that prospect pained the brothers greatly. Larry DuPont later lamented, quote, It was the only time I ever recall seeing a sense of true hopelessness in Ron's eyes. Earl, Jim, and Harley had more or less moved on with their lives, but for Ron and Russ, the matter was existential. Then it hit the brothers. John Hewlett, back in London, loved Sparks. He did, in fact, by the way, come around. Why not ring him up and see about relocating permanently to the UK? Hewlett agreed to work on putting something together and immediately started greasing the skids for a UK-based Sparks. Meanwhile, the male brothers had a tough choice to make. Do they go through the trouble of bringing over the other three band members, or should they cut bait and start fresh with a new band? Getting the work permits together was a challenge for just two people, and time was of the essence. Harley remembers a call from Russell that was never followed up on. Said Harley, Russ called me up out of the blue and asked if I wanted to go to England. Days later, when Harley returned the call, it was too late. They were gone. Recalls Jim Mankey, the worst time was definitely when Ron called me up and said, we're leaving, goodbye. Years later, in 1993, Russell explained his and Ron's decision to leave the others behind in stark and brutally honest terms. 
Said Russell, we had to decide whether to save the relationship with our college buddies or cause a lot of resentment. We said fuck him and jumped on the first plane. Sparks never again would show any pretense of being a real band, at least not one that in any way resembled a democratic outfit. From this point on out, Sparks was strictly a vehicle for Ron and Russell to follow their whimsy and would feature only Ron and Russell as permanent members. So, what became of the rest of Sparks' Mark I? Harley Feinstein got out of the music business, earned a law degree, and opened up a practice in San Diego. In the early 2010s, he formed a band with his wife and a few other veteran musicians where he would get to revisit old Sparks songs, as well as other glam and new wave hits from the early to late 70s. In 2006, he reteamed with James Lowe to record a comeback album by the Electric Prunes. You'll get to hear from Harley at length after this portion of the podcast. Earl Mankey stayed in the music business and became a sought-after producer and solo artist in his own right. He earned a minor hit in 1978 with Mau Mau, released a couple of solo albums in the 1980s, and produced such legendary acts as Concrete Blonde and Helen Reddy. He would work with Sparks once more on the 1975 B-side England Speaking of Concrete Blonde, Jim Mankey was an integral part of the seminal alternative rock band from the very beginning and has been responsible for much of that band's signature sound. Larry DuPont exited the music scene and became a highly respected photographer and graphic designer. Roy Silver went on to find massive success managing the comedy and musical career of Bill Cosby. Luckily... I'm sorry to say, Silver passed away in 2003, some 12 or so years before the name Bill Cosby took on far darker associations. Albert Grossman stayed with Bearsville Records until his death at age 59 in 1986. After Sparks, he went on to help shape the careers of bands including NRBQ and the DBs. His time managing Bob Dylan remained his crowning achievement. I want to thank all you guys for listening to my podcast. Please uh, like us on Facebook. Uh, Be sure to uh, check out our page there. Um, If you're a Sparks fan, I'm sure you are. uh, Definitely uh, join the Indiscreet uh, Sparks fan page on Facebook. And, of course, you can email me directly at podcastsparks at gmail.com. Thanks so much, you guys. Now, uh, stick around for a a really nice, in-depth, generous interview with Harley Feinstein.
Just what is his game? No more Mr. Nice Guys. Okay, ready for you. Hey, great. Hey, great, man. man. Uh, uh, Harley, first, first of all, thank you so much for taking the time, out of, time out of your day. You're to, very welcome. Uh, thank you. I thank appreciate, you. That, appreciate so that so much. So how, how's, how, the how's the weather right, weather right now, now in, now in San Diego? Well, it's kind of uh, alternating. Uh, yeah, we, we have uh, – I'm right on the coast here. I'm looking at the water right in now. Cedita, right? Uh, I moved, actually. Uh, my wife and I moved to Solana Beach. Oh, yeah. Oh. That's gorgeous. You know Solana Beach? Yeah. So it's – uh, so, yeah. So we're living in a nice place and overlooking the water and it's, uh, it's really beautiful. Gorgeous. Oh, gorgeous great. gorgeous great. environment. Anyway, the weather you know, kind of fluctuates between – uh, the air moving from the ocean onto the land, they call that onshore, uh-huh. or, or the other kind of weather where the air is moving from the land onto the ocean, that's called offshore. And when it's onshore, when the wind is blowing off the ocean, it's kind of cold and foggy and murky. And then when it's coming from the land, blowing out to the ocean, it's kind of hot and sunny. So it's been going back and forth, back and forth. And uh, it's been kind of fun, actually. Yeah, yeah. I, uh, I, uh, I lived there I for about a, for year, about a year, year when I was in grad school, grad school. and uh, other than other the than, uh, uh, Santa Ana winds blowing in from the east, I yeah. kind of just remembered it being about 72 degrees all the time. Yeah, it doesn't change that much. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Well, anyway, yeah, like I said, thanks so much. Um, so, yeah, so I just wanted to, um, you know, just uh, borrow a few minutes of your day today for my uh, my Sparks podcast. And um, I had been watching some um, a bunch of YouTube videos of uh, some shows that you had been doing with uh, your 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 current uh, outfit, Crash Seventy Four. And I, uh, I I didn't realize that you guys you know hadn't just been keeping to a uh, Southern California circuit, but you guys did some some shows in London a few years ago as well. Okay. Well, let me t- uh, give you a little explanation on that. Sure. Um, uh, uh, back around, um, I don't know, 10, 15 years ago, something like that, uh, my wife and I, uh, Michelle and I, put together uh, a band here in San Diego area. And it was mostly, uh, you know, we just got together with friends and we uh, would, would have, have drinks and play and then I would cook dinner for everybody and and then we play some more and you know just you know fun kind of thing right. and then we started and and uh then we then we got a gig and and it was happened to be a saint patrick's day party so we thought well let's get let's give ourselves an irishy sounding name so <laughs> how about o'malley so <laughs> so somehow we called ourselves crash o'malley and that oh, yeah. that was yeah, I don't know. That was maybe 15 years ago, something like that. And uh, so, you know, we played uh, Crash O'Malley, played um, around locally, the local venues, and, you know, had a lot of fun. And then around um, maybe uh, 10 years ago or so, or 12, something like that, um, uh, I started to get into contact with the drummer of another band in England. Okay, I don't know if if you know a band, an English band called the Rosillos. So I, I, I hadn't before, but I just, as of this morning, started reading up on them and 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 listening. And uh, yeah, I think it's uh, it, you guys make a pretty good fit together. 
Yeah. So the so the Rosillos, they they uh, sprung up out of the you know the punk explosion in Alien like, Sex Fiend, right? Was that me? What was uh, was uh, one of them a, a former member of Alien Sex Fiend? Well, one of the members of Crash 74 was a member of the Alien Sex Fiend. That's true. Uh, right. Steve, Stevie Savage. But going all the way back to 1976, um, I, you know, there was this band called the Rosillos, and they, and they kind of sprung out of the whole punk phenomenon in like 1976. They were actually in Scotland, and they were really good, really good band. But, you know, they had the whole uh, punk attitude of uh, discontent and uh, anti-authoritarianism. And, and, and as good as they were, they just really pissed off the record company Sire Records. I think they oh. put it. Put a cake on Seymour Stein's wife's head. <laughs> they just did, yeah, That's and they punk, were baby, yeah. So that you know, it's like we want we want to get out of our record deal. Good riddance. <laughs> so so Sire cut them loose, and then they formed another band called the Revillos with a V instead of a Z. And the difference is they had a really good drummer named Nicky Forbes. Uh-huh. So over the years, I and I was a I was a big fan. So I and I really liked the drums. I liked Nicky's playing, and he and I became became friends online back in the MySpace days. And uh, so um, Nicky came out for a visit about ten years ago, and we kind of took Crash O'Malley and added Nicky Forbes to the mix. And played a couple of local gigs, and it was so much fun. And I thought it sounded really good. Uh, and then we thought, oh, that's so great. You know, too bad you're all the way over, you know, in England, and we're here. And anyway, uh, Nick, we the next year, Michelle and I and, and our bass player, Paul Jensen, we flew to London. And Nikki over there in London put together English musicians. One of the guys was your, the one guy you mentioned, Um uh, Stevie Savage yes. from Alien Sex Fiend, and Lee Sullivan, who actually uh, was in a Roxy Music tribute band, and uh, but a famous uh, graph, a famous artist, cartoonist, who's the official cartoonist for for um, for Doctor Who, <laughs> and uh, and then another gentleman on trumpet named uh, Lynn Thompson. He goes by stage name Dexy Dan. Dexy D'Angelo. So we put on shows. We rehearsed in London, and we put on shows there. And it was great. We did about half Spark songs and half Revillo songs because, you know, Nikki was from the Revillos. Right. And and we played uh, some gigs, and we did one in, in London at, at the um, uh, club, uh, the 12-bar club in, uh, near Covent Garden. And we sold out, and it was so much fun. Wow. They, knew all, they knew all the words to the songs, especially the Spark songs. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> And uh, it was great. Oh, that's fantastic! Yeah, I mean that's one thing that comes up again and again as I as I interview people for my my podcast. Anyone from the other side of the Atlantic, they know all the songs, and yeah. they, they you know and and you know I talk about what I'm doing over here, and almost no one knows Sparks. So were were did they know of your contribution to the uh, to the early years of Sparks when you <laughs> met the these audience. guys? Oh, I mean, the, the, well, yeah, the band members as well. Oh no, no, the band, yeah, oh, the band members were were Sparks fans. Yes, oh, that's they were really cool. Yeah, they were. There's a lot of Sparks fans in England, and uh, you know, before the before the internet came up, you know, between the when I left Sparks, which was in uh, seventy, I guess seventy four, and then and then when like MySpace came out, whenever that was, that was like night early night. Mid nineties, maybe something, or 
whenever that was, uh, you know, whenever the whole internet thing came yeah. in my in space. Yeah, I was really kind of completely unaware that there was any interest in Sparks, and I certainly was was unaware that there was any awareness or interest in my role in Sparks, that's for sure. And then it wasn't until MySpace came along where people started to contact me from England saying, hey, you know, I love the fact that you were in this band, you know, I love the band and this and that. I love Sparks and all that. And <laughs> so that was kind of interesting. Very that must have been so crazy. I mean, you, you know, 20 some odd years and you, know, you, you probably didn't have a whole lot of feedback about your role in Sparks. And then suddenly you've got, you know, yeah. you've got all these people, you know, coming out of the woodwork and, uh, yeah. and interested in, and, and, you know, and, and what, what you did with them at that time. Yeah. Like, ima- like imagine. Me. <laughs> yeah. Imagine you're, you know, like you're a high school student, okay? And you get on the high school football team, or maybe you're a cheerleader, whatever. And and you're like 17, 18, you're a kid, right? And you go through this, what feels to you like this, you know, pretty intensely amazing experience, which is, you know, really special and unique as far as you're concerned. And, you know, you're like, you know, the king of the school and all that, you know, you're walking around and you're football, whatever it is, you know? And then, you know, you graduate from high school and you forget about it, right? And that's it. You, It's in your mind as something important that you did when you were young. But you never think about it. No one ever brings it up. It's, it's gone. It's forgotten. So that's kind of like what Sparks was with me. I was a kid. I was right out of high school. Right. And, and this thing happened, which to me was like unbelievable, phenomenal. But then it ended for me. And I kind of forgot about it and went on with my life. And then 20 years later, it just comes back. <laughs> right. Well, that must have been really rewarding, though, and surprising. Yeah, very think. much. So, I mean, you were, like you said, just out of high school, I guess, when uh, Ron and, and Russell and uh, Earl Mankey uh, first contacted you, or do you, I, I've, yes. I've read several books, so I don't know, you know, who put an ad out, if they put the ad out, or you put the ad out. But it was, I was, yeah, it's true, I was right out of high school. I, I had actually, I was in my first year of college, I believe, uh, and... Um, I was just looking for some friends to uh, to play music with, and so I put up a, a a little card, an index card on a bulletin board in Santa Monica at Ace Music. And Ron and Russ lived in that area. They lived in Pacific Palisades, which is right near Santa Monica, and they were looking for a drummer. And uh, Russ found that um, card and gave me a call. And I remember the I remember what I wrote on the card. Yeah. I said, "Looking for some, you know." cool people <laughs> to, to, to jam with into rock country blues jazz you name it well, and they're into none of that <laughs> they didn't know and i couldn't play any of that stuff anyway right. maybe maybe rock i couldn't certainly couldn't play jazz <laughs> i sucked you know? so i mean that must have been really interesting because you know i mean i i've you know in doing this podcast i've been doing all my research and i listened a lot to the the first uh, so-called demo album they made where, where they, you know, had a couple of different drummers here and there, but really didn't pay too much attention to the rhythm section uh, with, with the drums. And so, you know, maybe they didn't know exactly what it was that they wanted in a, in a drummer, but uh, they, they, they seemed to really take, take a shine to, to you and what, and what you were doing. Yeah. Well, you know, it, it was Ron and Russ, uh, I considered to be, kind of one entity mm-hmm. uh, because they always agreed, you know, they, they would, they would confer with each other first before they would articulate their positions. <laughs> <laughs> and then there was Earl 
and Earl was just as big of a force mm-hmm. as Ron Russ were. Okay, I know everybody goes Ron Russ, Ron Russ, but Earl was just as big of a force at that time yeah. as they were. Uh, and um, Earl's attitude about drums was, you know, he wanted to keep it as minimal as possible, mm-hmm. and he was always coaching me to play less. Whereas Ron and Russ, they, you know, they wanted to be the who. <laughs> mm-hmm. And that, and they were always goading me play more, play louder, play harder, play more rock, play be a more of a wild man. Okay, so they wanted I was you to be of, a Mark Bolin. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I was kind of like in the middle there, but but not the not the Mark Bolin of the early age, like Torch Girl of the Marshes. They were very aware of, of that, and we all listened to those early with uh, David uh, Mark Bolin and Mickey Finn. You know where it was like congas and gentle, kind of uh, mysterious elves in the forest kind of music. <laughs> yeah, we listened to that, but that wasn't that wasn't what uh, they or we were after. There was more like Electric Warrior that more that era. Yeah, um, you know it's yeah it's interesting. So when I when I do hear the first couple of albums that that you're on, you know I, I hear um, you know the couple, the big singles like Girl from Germany or Wonder Girl, and your playing is really minimal, is really minimalist right. on those. And I'm sure that was you know that was you know you were instructed in that way, and it's it's really you know and it works very very well. And then when you go through those albums it's really gratifying to hear you get the chance to really let loose and unleash and a couple of great examples actually you guys with crash 74 i heard you um play live on some of those youtube clips like um whippings and apologies and no more mr nice guys yeah you really get a chance to to let loose and that must have been really that must have been really fun for you yeah, yeah. As uh, as as time went by, I became uh, as my time with Sparks went uh, developed. Um, I became less less and less restrained. Yeah, less. Well, that's great. Yeah. Well, and also, um, you. Uh, I guess you. You know, you and um, and James Lowe. You guys kind of got on well, didn't you? And didn't you work together at some point? Yeah. Afterwards, right. So, so James Lowe, um, he's a he's a really interesting guy. Okay, he uh, his great 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 grandfather started the Air Force. What? <laughs> Back during the days of the of the around the Civil War era, uh, this old this old guy um, he came up with the idea that we could he was on the Union side we could fight from the air using balloons. So he did, you know, they had hot air balloons. So they, they would, his great, 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 great grandfather, you know, he and some other soldiers, you know, would fly balloons and shoot the Confederates. And, and they're, they're, he comes from a line of very creative thinkers. And then as the generations developed over the years, his family settled in Southern California. And some of them uh, started like the water company, <laughs> public utilities, <laughs> you know, very successful. Um, that makes very, me think about Chinatown. Yeah, exactly. Right. High achieving uh, people. And then, and uh, James himself, um, he, he was he's a little old, a few years older than me. <laughs> and, uh, and, and in the uh, early sixties, James went to Hollywood, uh, not Hollywood, Hawaii. Mm. And because he was, 
he was a this was this was I guess before the electric prunes. He was a you know typical Southern California surfer dude. He was the archetypal of the blonde hair. You know he looked the part. He acted the surfer part. Dude. So he, he went to the North Shore in the early sixties. Went to the North Shore of Oahu, where that was like the center of the surfing universe. So James is like hanging out there. He's like. He's like really good looking. He's like modeling and hanging out on the North Shore, surfing there. I don't know how much surfing he was doing, but he was crewing, crewing yachts. You know, total paradise life. And he's looking at the, um, at the. He's going, God, if only I had the money to buy a lot here on the North Shore and build something. Uh, it'd be so great. Well, fast forward forty years later, after the electric prunes and. Mm. Todd Rundgren, all that stuff. He's retired, you know, pretty much retired. So this is pretty he, recently. Yeah, we're talking like uh, in like well, actually in the eighties. Okay. He finds that he finds this like thirty acres up in the hills north of Santa Barbara, and buys it for like practically nothing. Well, during the decades after that, Michael Jackson buys the hill next to him and starts Neverland. Um, all these movie stars move to the area, so his 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 real estate here is like goes up to worth millions and millions. James builds a this, this uh, beach house <laughs> on the hilltop there, and then wound up uh, in two thousand eight, right when the crash occurred. He sold it right before the state crash occurred, and buys this awesome beachfront property on the North Shore, not of Oahu, but of in Dominican Republic, because by then he's like a total windsurf um, and kite surfing fanatic. Huh. Too old, too old to wave surf, but now he's into you know kite surfing and, and windsurfing. And so he's there. <laughs> he's, oh, it's wow. like he's living in this tropical paradise. So along the way, uh, he and I became good friends. And um, and you know how there, there's like different philosophies about how to put together a group of people to make music. Okay. Mm-hmm. Am I rambling too much? No, not at all. Go on. All right. <laughs> okay. No, so good. yeah. So uh, you know one of one of the ways, one of the motives, or the philosophies of putting together a group of musicians to make music is you just are affiliating with friends, with people you like. And if good music comes out of it, incidentally, great, so much the better. But the main thing is the relationship. Mm-hmm. Well, that, that's what James and I did. You know, we, were, we really liked each other. We were friends. So, uh, and he wanted to, you know, he was working on get, reviving the electric prunes. So he said, well, why don't you, you know, you can come play with us too, you know, come and, and record with us. So at that time, that's when he was living in that mountaintop, Retreat next in the hill next to Michael Jackson's estate, <laughs> and you could hear the choo choo going doo doo, and uh, and he had a recording studio that you had to hike to, uh, this treetop recording studio, <laughs> and that's where we recorded, and uh, it was pretty fun. It was really this fun. Was, so you're talking about when the Electric Prunes released a, I sort of like a revival uh, album, uh, twelve or thirteen years ago or so. Yeah, yeah, it was. It wasn't the initial revival album, but it was maybe the next one. Okay, well that's, yeah, was, that's great. Yeah, you, you know, in and um, in, in reading all the sources that um, that I've been relying on for the podcast that I'm doing, I, 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 I keep getting this sense from James Lowe that he was so in love, especially with the second with Woofer and the Tweeter's clothing. So in love with that album that he was, you know, he was he was sad to see that go. It's like the, the big one that that got away, and um, and so I, you yeah. know, I I wondered what he, I 
you know, what he had done after that. And I guess he got into the movie business. Is that right? Yeah. After, after, what he what he told me was that uh, that he was so sure that Woofer and Tweeter's clothing was going to be big. Yeah. That when it wasn't. He said, oh, screw this. I don't know anything about the music business. You know, if this isn't going to be big, nothing's ever going to be big. So yeah, he, yeah. he was a he, true believer. Yeah, he was a yeah. believer. He was a true believer. He really got into it. He, he did an excellent job on, on producing that album. So, yeah, he, he got out and, and switched over to making uh, television commercials. Oh, gotcha. Okay. Uh, there's Yeah, that's an interesting kind of coincidence there because I think you guys, when you did that, what was that short little song on that album? The battery's not included. Oh, yeah. And I think mm-hmm. that there was some thought that that might be a commercial itself for the album. Oh, maybe. I, I never heard that song. Well, yeah. And I actually, I had been wondering about that because I, I read that it was intended to maybe be a commercial a promotion for the album itself. And I don't know if that ever that ever came to fruition. Mm, but, never heard um, but, but at any rate, yeah. So, I mean, I you know, I know, you know, Harley, you've done tons of interviews answering the same questions over and over again about your time with Sparks. And, um, uh, you know, I, I, and I've listened to a lot of them, so I don't need you to repeat yourself, but, um, it was when, but when you first started with them, I mean, like you said, you were what, 18, 19, something like that. You were just out of high school. Right. Right. So, I mean, had you played live with a lot of bands at that point? No, no, I had only played, uh, with my friends uh, at my house or their house, I would bring over my drums, or they bring over their guitars, and and we would um, get high and uh, <laughs> and make psychedelic sounding music. Basically, right. is what, well, that's what that's what I did that back then. Yeah, that was that was that was it. I and and that was all I was after when I placed that ad, which resulted in me getting into uh, what was then called Half Nelson. Right. I was, I was just looking for some buddies. To, to hang with and play some music with. That was it. Oh, man, that's that's fantastic. Yeah, and, and by the way, speaking of getting high, that must have been kind of odd with Ron and Russell being such straight-edge guys. Well, yeah, I didn't know what to make. I, you know, I assumed that they were, you know, that Ron Russell and Earl were just like everyone else I knew. <laughs> and, was Earl himself, was Earl also pretty straight in that regard? 100%. Oh, really? Yes. No kidding. Oh, yeah, yeah. Wow, that's I mean it's it, it's it's never not surprising to me when I when I hear about people like him and Captain Beefheart and Frank Zappa just uh yeah. how a, a, a big adherence they they were to uh to just <laughs> to 100% clean living. Yeah, no alcohol, no drugs. Um uh Ron and Russ were especially Ron uh also um uh, I felt a healthy diet was important. Yeah, um, yeah. Now that kind of came more later, actually. But right. um, yeah, no, it was a little surprising to me. I didn't, uh, you know, yeah, I, you know, I was looking at like Hendrix and yeah, yeah, Townsend. You know, they're all like wild yeah, livers. Yeah, I mean, that was the rock and roll lifestyle, especially right. you know in the early seventies or whatever. Yeah. So, so what, assume, what was yeah, it like doing? Oh, I'm sorry to interrupt. That's all. Go ahead. Uh, what, what, what was it? Uh, I mean, what, what was the experience like in the studio with uh, with James? And I guess in the with the first album, Todd. You had Todd Rundgren, and I, I don't know how um, how present he was. 
but what was it like for you know your first experience you know being in a studio you know, cutting an album for a big label well it was uh pretty earth-shatteringly amazing yeah. <laughs> you know i was i was still going to school at the time you know so i would like uh go to class and then say, well, I got to leave because I got to go to the recording studio. And we go, what? Yeah, I'm making a record. And, um, you know, now everybody makes a record, right? (laughs) It's very easy. easy Yeah. I do it right here in my kitchen, right? You know, these days, right? Everybody's in a band now. Everybody can make records. It's, it's nothing special, but back then, you know, recording studios were very, very, very expensive and needed a lot of capital to start one up. And, um, and they were and they were like luxurious, you know. You'd go into the recording studio, and, and it was uh, you know, like a you know a luxurious experience. You could just very you know, a very um, uh, well. They had these acoustic architects that would come in and design the studio. Uh-huh. And you know, they were beautiful antique ashtrays. It was it was great. I, I wanted to ask you something specific when talking about you know conspicuous wealth and all that. Yeah. Um, and doing my, my research for uh, the Woofer album, mm-hmm. uh, the song um, Here Comes Bob. So I read that there were actual Rolls Royces um, driving this um, uh, string quartet into the album, to uh, into the studio to play that song. Do, do you remember that? Rolls Royces? Yes. <laughs> no, I don't. Remember. Okay, all right. Oh, I was just curious. That's a good, a funny story, though. <laughs> yeah, 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 it was really interesting. Um, okay, well, um, so were there, um, and I won't take up too much of your time, but um, what was, um, I mean, what was it like? That's such a broad question, but I mean, getting, I, I assume that when you did do that, uh, that tour um, in uh, Europe and mostly the UK, in late 72, that was probably the first time you had traveled across the Atlantic? That's correct, yes. Yeah. Uh, I, yeah, uh, Ron and Russ and Earl had uh, already taken a couple of trips as tourists uh, to, uh, to England and, the, and, and, uh, and, and Europe. And, uh, you know, that, especially Ron and Russ, that's what uh, kind of got them so excited about the whole English uh, music scene. And right. uh, they wanted to be part of it. Oh, that's well. That's great. And, 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 and I, th- I think Earl caught that bug from them. I, I think I, I don't think Earl was predisposed to you know want to be English before he met Ron. I don't think so. I think I right. think they gave him. I'm not 100 percent sure on that because by the time I met Earl, he was already you know uh, he had already gotten the religion. <laughs> oh, that's really cool, man. Um, well, you know, so when. You know, when, when they made the, the choice to go over, just Ron and Russ, uh, I've yeah. read conflicting reports. I mean, were any of you guys uh, asked about uh, wanting to join them? Well, um, what happened was when, when we all did, when, when the five of us did the, um, the trip to England in uh, 72 and 73, that, mm-hmm. that, that trip, uh, we felt we were really making some pretty good headway over there. You sure. know? Being on TV meant everything. You know, as soon as we were on TV, suddenly everyone had come to see us. We were, you know, we had become uh, big, uh, big fromages. Uh, <laughs> people were interested. They were, you know, they wanted, they wanted to see Sparks. And then, because of uh, 
all kinds of reasons, complicated reasons that I could only speculate on. Sure. The record company, you know, pulled the rug out from under us and sent us back to L.A. So we were very disappointed about that. But on the other hand, we were happy to be home and, you know, see our girlfriends and all that. Right. Um, and during that time, so once we first got back there, we 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 still had some momentum going with the record company and with the with the local business music business people, so that we got booked into the whiskey uh, quite oh, a lot. Yeah. So so for a while after we got back, we were we were feeling pretty good about things, but then um, the whole thing just died. It just died. I don't know why, but yeah. all all of the interest of the record company died who knows why but it just completely ended and we weren't getting any more support anymore we weren't getting gigs nothing was happening so the five of us all kind of uh, went our separate ways and found other interests earl got a, a job got a great job working for the beach boys okay no yeah and their and their recording studio he became their engineer so that was an awesome. I job. had always wondered what happened to Earl Mankey. So he yeah, was he yeah. became an engineer was, for the Beach Boys. Yeah, he was doing great. He was working very long hours and was you know kind of at their beck and call. And, you know, you can imagine <laughs> what they were. Must have well, Beach Boys must oh, have been Jesus. like. Yeah. Hey, Earl, in the seventies. Yeah. <laughs> we want to record something. Okay, okay. And then yeah. Ron and Russ just um, get a full orchestra in here by tomorrow. <laughs> right. Yeah. So. Uh, you know, Earl's a very, very competent man. Uh, he was, he was, he already, he had a degree in uh, electrical engineering from UCLA. I mean, the mm. guy was really accomplished. And uh, you know, Ron and Russ, I kind of lost contact with them. We sure. weren't really in touch with them. And then, uh, and I was, I had, I was really into skiing. Okay, that was what I got into. I, I, started, okay, I think I read about I that too. To ski nut. All right. So then one day I got a call from Russ and. He said, you know, hypothetically speaking, if we could go back to England, would you go? And I said, oh, God, you know, I have to think about it. So I thought about it and thought about it. And I called Russ back a few days later and I go, um, yeah, the answer is yes. But I was hesitant. I was hesitant because I was kind of happy here in Southern California. and right. wasn't sure I wanted to go back to England. But I said, yeah, I, I would do it. And he goes, okay, okay, you know, duly noted or whatever. Mm. And, and, then I, you know, and then I didn't hear from him for months. And then one day, uh, a friend, my girlfriend's, you know, so, uh, you know, a friend of a friend, uh, he, um, he said, hey, Harley, I, I saw your buddies. And they were having a garage sale. I go, they were? He goes, yeah, they're selling all their stuff and they're going back to England, they said. I said, what? He goes, yeah. That's what they told me. They, everything must go. You know, all their knickknacks and everything that they collected over the years are selling it out on their front lawn. And they were getting, you know, they're moving out of the house and they're moving back to England. Mm -hmm. And I said, really? And then the next thing I knew, poof, they were gone. Mm -hmm. So then I didn't. And so, you know, at that point, my attitude was Sparks had kind of already maybe broken up. Mm -hmm. Okay. Before Ron and Russ picked up the ball and went to England, it really wasn't clear to me if Sparks was still a band. Right. We weren't. We weren't in contact with each other. We weren't playing. We weren't practicing. We weren't talking about it. We weren't talking about it. We were all doing our own things. And you know, if you had asked me if the band was still together or broken up at that time, I said, you know, I'm not sure. I don't, right. I don't know. You know, maybe we might get back together. I don't know. Yeah. So, yeah. so what what was left was the brand, the name, the trademark, Sparks. That's all there was really right. at that point. You know, and and the albums and 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 uh, the, and then the, but the, you know the goodwill and 
and uh, there was still the record contract. So uh, Ron and Russ, uh, I'm sorry, was, was there still an active contract? Yeah, we were still. Uh, we, were, I believe so. After, after Woofer, um, that's a good question. There's a man. Okay, the management contract was still in effect with our manager. Was the record it was Albert Grossman, right? Yeah, you know, I don't know. That's a good question. I don't know the answer to that. Whether the record, I've been trying to get a copy of the record contract for years. Ah, and I, I haven't been able what to I get can it. Do. <laughs> yeah, uh, I I would like to I would like to get a copy of that contract because there's you know, anyway. So I I I, well, I don't you know deal with a lot of contracts these days. Well, I've been a lawyer for yeah, for like forty years, so I read a lot of contracts. Yeah, over <laughs> oh, that long, I didn't realize. Yeah. So yeah. So anyway. So um. So so. Boom, they're gone. I thought, well, okay, <laughs> I guess that's the end of the band. And then one day uh, I receive a, an envelope, a large manila envelope in the mail. And it was from Russ. I'm thinking, what? Why is Russ sending me this big, large manila envelope? And I open it up and out spills a pile of news clippings from Melody Maker and New Musical Express and, you know, all the, all the trades. Uh, and everyone had, a, you know, Sparks is the biggest thing, you know, this town ain't big enough for the bulk of us. And, you know, here's... He's sending you all this from England. This he said was in right. like 74, 75, something like that. Uh, yeah, af- after, you know, they went back to England and they, they recorded and they did, and they released uh, This Town Ain't Big Enough for the Both of Us, yeah. which, ex- which exploded. exploded but I, yeah. Yeah, I didn't, I was not, yeah, I didn't know. And then I get the envelope and then, wow, my God, they're big stars in England. And then they, then they came to this country to, to Santa Monica and played a gig and, and we all went. And then I saw firsthand, I saw the phenomenon. That's amazing. What do you think the, what do you think his point was for sending that? Um, I don't know. Yeah. I think I think he genuinely wanted to uh, make me aware of of, of what happened. Share, share the good news. That right, was my right. yeah. It was a good question. Yeah, it wasn't like nah nah nah. You know, look how yeah. good we are out without you. I did not. I certainly did not perceive it that way. I thought he was sharing the good news. Well, I think it's really fantastic that you know you're you're you know after all these years. You know, getting your due and you're getting to, you know, re, uh, re-explore and re-express, um, all the stuff that you got to do with Sparks in that era with your band right now. Uh, are you guys, um, are you, uh, do you have like a, a do, do you have any tours, like a, a tour date set right now or, or to just keep keeping it pretty casual, um, al- alongside your law career? Oh, for my music I'm making now? Yeah. Oh. Yeah, no, it's it's about as casual as you can get. Yeah, well, yeah. The the main the main band that that I play with these days is the one called Wag Halen. Okay, you probably saw some. And the way that that's the way that that started about about ten years ago, uh, we we put together something for a party, you know, just joking around. You know, we we sucked. I I never even liked. Van Halen, to tell you yeah, the truth. Yeah, yeah. I'm not a huge fan either, but, you know, whatever. I'll... Yeah, but I was aware of them. I knew some of the songs, you know, and and and, uh, and one of the guys in this in this group that wanted to put this thing together, he was able to do a really good David Lee Roth, okay? He's kind of naturally had that 
that personality. <laughs> and the guitar player could kind of sort of play some of the, you know, uh, Eddie Van Halen Eddie licks. Yeah. yeah. So we put this thing together. We played at a party and, and we had so much fun that we, we sucked terrible. Oh, God, we were awful. Well, how uh, long had this been, like, since you had played the last time when you? Well, how long had it been? Well, I had, uh, I had been playing, you know, with with the band with my wife at the time. So I, okay. I was playing. I was playing pretty regularly. So I was I was playing pretty well as a drummer at, at that time. But um, I, I got I after Sparks, I didn't play until 1995. Oh no, that's, kidding! No, that's when I started playing the drums again with some friends. And then so this was maybe 10 years later when uh, this this Wag Halen thing started up. And uh, so we we become a uh, kind of like local legends <laughs> uh-huh. in North County, San Diego, Wag Halen. So we we can if we announce that we're playing a, a gig in a local place, it it will be packed. It, it, will, be, it will be just packed. That's amazing. Partying people, they love us. It's so much fun. One, one of the, one of the things we did was uh, our bass player in Wag Halen was uh, is is and was an accomplished musician and uh, he, he's actually he has eight grammys to his credit for, oh wow who's this produ- his name is chris, his name is chris goldsmith okay oh. and uh, so so he was he he was our bass player and uh, you know having a and he's like the president of the a place called the belly up which is the pre- premier one of the premier venues in in san Diego county so, you know, that right away gave us a lot of connections. And um, he, um, and, the, and then he, he's, you know, like he's got eight Grammys. He produced a, an original recording that we made. And the, and the original recording was an ode to the hot middle-aged women that live in we our – We call them MILFs. Yes, exactly. Right. Those those women. There's, there's, or kooks. Yeah, if you spend any time here, you are aware that I'm very aware. All <laughs> these these amazing looking yoga toned baby stroller pushing hot women. Okay, so um, you know I I never noticed that. Okay, I don't never paid any attention to that because I'm a very happily married man. Yeah, of course, and my wife is so incredibly hot. But the other guys, you know, they were they were so. The other guys in the band and Wag Halen are, are were so um, excited about that aspect of where we live that they wrote a song called "The Encinitas Moms," and <laughs> so we we recorded it uh, and we had this guy, this you know Grammy Chris Goldsmith, this Grammy Award winning producer. He did a really good job recording it, and then we got a, a video company to make a video of it, and it became a, a local internet sensation everywhere i go oh you're the you're the encinitas mom's guy oh jesus (laughs) yeah i'm gonna have to finish out this podcast playing that by the way if i can find it encinitas moms oh yeah just go to youtube and type in encinitas moms and and it's got like you know half a million hits (laughs) god that's fantastic wow well that's that's really that's really great um so i mean are are you getting the chance to play maybe weekly or maybe just a couple times a month well, we get together and play weekly. Yeah. You know, we have a, a studio that we play at, but we try not to do too many shows because you know these are all like free. You can't do. You can't ask the the, the same people to come yeah. every to see your show. So we try to keep it just you know maybe um, once every couple months. Any more than that, it's people are going to go and lose interest. Well, that's great. Well, like like I 
I don't know if I said this, but I still I've got family there in the area, so. Uh, Oh, come and visit. Uh, I'm getting, yeah, exactly. Next time Crash 74 is, do, is doing a show in Encinitas or anywhere, especially Fashion Valley, where my aunt lives still, uh, she'll have to uh, come and check you out. Um, <laughs> but man, I so appreciate your time here, Harley. Um, I, I've been talking with our mutual friend, Monty, Monty Mallon. Yeah. And he had a, a lot of great stuff to, to say about you, too. And. Um, it really, really, really is a pleasure, and I hope you wouldn't mind if you know we might be able to do this again sometime in the future if I have other um, questions for you. But um, absolutely, this is, yeah. I actually I had just I, I guess there's one last ever, thing. Oh, ever what was the, that? You ever hear the expression "l'esprit d'escalier"? L'esprit d'escalier. L'esprit d'escalier. So it's the spirit of. Of, of the stairs. Of the stairs, and, and what, yes. And what it means is, uh, in, it's a French expression, meaning that once you leave the room and you walk down the stairs, back to your car or whatever, that's when you think of, oh, I should have oh, said this, course. or I should have asked that. Yes. So so you're probably going to experience l'esprit d'escalier. I, w- I will experience <laughs> like, that as well, yeah. Well, and this is all, you know, and I, I've learned from listening to a lot of uh, uh, Terry Gross uh, always to end with, was there anything that you wanted to say in this interview that you didn't, you haven't had a chance to? No, that's how, that's always, uh, how I always uh, end depositions as well. <laughs> <laughs> but, and, Very and, well. uh, uh, and I'm, so used, I'm so used to dep- depositions and I, I'll say no. <laughs> <laughs> Very good. Well, I only got as far as taking the LSAT. I didn't uh, get nearly as far as you. Um, but that's fantastic. Uh, I did check out your uh, your website there for your practice, and, and you had a lot of clients saying a lot of very good things about you. So I, I appreciate the work that you're doing there for the uh, for the San Diego area. And, uh, and thanks so much uh, again, Harley, for your time. I really appreciate it, man. Okay, Christian. Nice talking to you. You too.
Weapons and apology. 